you know, I love being out on court. I love being playing against the guys and um, traveling. You know, I never really felt it was that hard for me to do. Um, love winning, learn from losing. It was all perfect. You know, I, I love my career um, from every angle. And that's um, the bitter part. The sweet part was that um, I know everybody has to do it at one point. Everybody has to leave the game and it's been a, a great, great journey and for that I'm really grateful. Legacy is a deeply overused word in sports and whenever an all-time great like Roger Federer announces his retirement, as you just heard, it feels like we're obligated to define what his legacy is. And so we count, right? We count the major championships, 20 the third most all-time. Or we wax poetic about what David Foster Wallace called Federer moments. Those memories, those jaw-dropping moments of athletic transcendence that only someone like Roger Federer could give us. But we want to do something a little different. So today, as 41-year-old Roger Federer waves goodbye at the Laver Cup this weekend... We asked David Epstein, the best sports science writer in America, to give us his perspective on what he calls the Federer model and why it actually applies to all of us. I'm Pablo Torre. It's Thursday, September 22nd. This is ESPN Daily. Dave Epstein, when Roger Federer announced he was retiring, a lot of people thought of Rafa Nadal or Novak Djokovic, his, his colleagues, his competitors at the very top of tennis. But I have to admit that I immediately thought of you. So thank you for joining us. Naturally. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thanks. I'm glad you got your priorities straight, unlike the rest of these tennis fans. But, but look, you are the author of one of my favorite books, not just about sports science or performance science, but just in general. And it is called Range. It is a New York Times bestseller. And the life of Roger Federer, Dave, is in some ways just the key to so much of what you wrote about. So I am curious, when you heard that Roger was retiring, what did you think? You know, obviously, I think it's it's always sad when one of probably the greatest three tennis players ever is retiring. But for me, Roger is much more than a tennis player. He's kind of a, a, a symbol of what science says, like how sports development should occur. But but even beyond that, for me, kind of an analogy, or I think the way that a lot more people would develop if we want to want to raise human performance in general. So let's get into the model. Let's get into your perspective on why this all is bigger than just tennis, Dave. Where do you want to start in explaining what you're thinking about here? I think I want to start with a story that's probably familiar to everybody listening to this podcast. And it starts with a kid whose father gave him a putter when he was seven months old. Uh, and at 10 months, he started imitating his father's swing. At two years old, you can go on YouTube right now and see him on national television showing off his swing. By three, he starts saying, I'm going to be the world's next great golfer. You know, I'm going to be the next Jack Nicholas. Uh, he's famous by the time he's a teenager, 
Fast forward to the age of 21, he's the greatest golfer in the world. Um, if there's anybody listening to this podcast who doesn't know that that's Tiger Woods' story, then they probably got to the wrong podcast. John Daly. Oh, oh, um, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So it's kind of the quintessential, you know, so-called 10,000 hours story. The idea that the only route to uh, superior achievement or expertise is through 10,000 hours of so-called deliberate practice, meaning like not playing around highly focused technical training, focused on correcting errors. So that's sort of this model that I think has become, that's probably the most impactful modern story of development that exists. Yes, this is this is the thing that so many parents look at, whether they know the Gladwellian 10,000 hours brand at this point, which we've covered on this podcast before, or just because they figure intuitively like intense focus is clearly how greatness is born. Yeah, that's an, and obviously Tiger did that and it, it is very intuitive and it's very attractive. And I, and I think it's, I think it's well-meaning, you know, I think it's well-intentioned that, that people want to get and give head starts. But, but on the other hand, Roger Federer's story is, is much less familiar. Yeah. So what is Roger Federer's story? Where does it begin? So while Tiger's kind of living this very famous childhood in, in California, a few years later in Switzerland, the quite different childhood of Roger Federer begins, where he's very, very interested in sports. He plays squash, tennis, skiing. His mother's actually a tennis coach, but declines to coach him because he <laughs> wouldn't return balls normally. She got annoyed, so he, he wasn't as into that like deliberate <laughs> practice, you know, more into playing around. He tries wrestling, swimming, uh, skateboarding. When his coaches start to notice he's he's good, they want to move him up to play with older boys. And he declines because he just wants to talk about pro wrestling with his friends after practice. Wait, so, so, so little Roger Federer is not only the opposite of the Tiger Earl Woods dynamic, but he's basically sampling all of the foods at the buffet at this point. In fact, scientists that study this kind of athletic development call it a sampling period. Um, and it turns out to be the typical pattern, uh, not the exclusive pattern, but the typical one for athletes who, who go on to become elite. And he, he kept trying, he, basketball, handball, badminton, soccer, rugby. And, and in fact, I didn't mention rugby in my book, but when I asked for a childhood photo from his family, if I could use one for a presentation, they let me use a photo of six-year-old Roger Federer wearing a Scottish rugby kit and holding a rugby ball. <laughs> so among the like dozen or so sports that I knew he sampled, apparently also rugby, <laughs> since, since that was a photo of him. And he, he really was quite different from Tiger, where again, at, at age three, Tiger started saying, you know, I'm going to be the world's next great, very focused from an early age. When Roger Federer became good enough to get an interview by a local newspaper and the reporter asked him what he would buy with his first hypothetical paycheck if he ever became a pro. And Federer says, a Mercedes. And his mother is appalled and asks the reporter if she can listen to the interview recording. <laughs> and turns out Roger said Mercedes in Swiss German. He just wanted more CDs, not Ugh. a Mercedes. Much more <laughs> modest uh, ambition, which is his mother, I guess, was fine with that. But by the time he focused in on tennis, which of course he did do, you know, there were many competitors who were already working with like nutritionists and like long since focused in on tennis. And the interesting thing is that, you know, he's every bit as famous as an adult as Tiger Woods. 
But even tennis enthusiasts don't usually know anything about his developmental background, whereas everyone knows the Tiger story, even though Federer's developmental background is the norm, according to science that studies people who go on to become elite uh, athletes. I think there are reasons for that. Wait, wait, but before we get into that part, Dave, Tiger Woods is being raised to be the greatest golfer of all time, and actually just even more than that, right? In contrast to Little Roger. Yeah, Tiger was, I mean, when Earl Woods first gave him that putter at seven months old, he wasn't trying to make him become a golfer. He was giving him like a toy, a putter that he wasn't using anymore. But Tiger's was very physically precocious. And so Earl saw something quickly that was unusual and and eventually came to feel that this person, you know, that Tiger with his talent had been kind of bestowed upon him because he was the right person to guide him. And, and you know, as he told one of our Sports Illustrated colleagues, Gary Smith, he felt that Tiger could ultimately, because of his talent, because of his intelligence, because of his, um, you know, mixed ethnic background, could have a bigger impact than like Mandela, you know, and Gandhi and the Buddha. Um, and he felt that he'd become a bridge between like the East and the West. So he would call him the, you know, the chosen one. Yeah. And, and Roger Federer just wanted to choose, yeah, the new Smash Mouth album. To play. <laughs> Me, I mean, you know, I don't know. Yeah. And, and talk pro wrestling. So um, <laughs> it sounds much more typical. But the funny thing is that, that, again, it's the norm. It's the norm, not the exception. So, so Dave, you've mentioned uh, a sampling period, the importance of technical practice, right? Like you get to learn all of these different skills and, and all the scientific literature beneath all of that. But among all of the truly elite athletes that you've studied, why is the Roger Federer model really the standard here? Yeah, so obviously athletes at the elite level, when we look at them or study them or watch at the elite level, they're spending a lot more time in that technical practice than athletes at lower levels. But when scientists have actually tracked athletes over the course of their development, what they see is that the future elites actually spend less time early on, a little less time in that so-called deliberate practice than athletes who plateau at lower levels. So they, they sometimes progress a little more slowly early on. They have this so-called sampling period where they do a variety of activities. Some of those are kind of can be more sort of athlete-led, like less structured or semi-structured. They gain these like broad general physical skills, sometimes called physical literacy, that scaffold later technical skills. They learn about their own interests and abilities, right? Mm. And they delay specializing until later than peers who plateau at lower levels and often continue sort of other hobby activities like surprisingly long, even, even when they are professionals. And, and so that's that's the norm that that Roger is like sort of a, uh, you know, a great symbol of. And the scientific research suggests kind of three reasons why that is. One is selection. Like when you force selection, especially before people have gone through puberty, you're just more likely to put the wrong person in the wrong place. Like to, to get worse, what's called match quality, which is mm. the degree of fit between the person's interests and abilities and what they're doing, turns out to be massively important. So the idea that, that you're trying to force someone into a box that actually they're not well-suited for. At, or at least they won't be when they develop farther. Um, and... So that's one of the, this match quality issue, like getting people in the right thing. One of the other benefits looks like it is when you play multiple, what's usually called in scientific literature, attacking sports, which means they're, you're trying to like defend an area or stop something from getting past you. So it could be baseball, but also obviously soccer, football, volleyball, basketball, where you're forced to 
basically learn perceptual expertise where, where you have to, the game unfolds so quickly that you have to learn how to judge like the positions of bodies in a way unconsciously that tells you what's going to happen before it happens. Mm. So it's called you know, anticipatory skill, perceptual expertise. And it looks like if you've played multiple different sports of that nature, that you get a benefit for learning any future one, essentially. Um, that there's some kind of learning benefit laid down. It's very similar to language, like kids that grow up with multiple languages will often actually be delayed a little bit early on in some of their language skills, but seem to then have an advantage for learning a subsequent language later on. Um, and so it seems very similar to that. And that's just the idea that when the brain is learning how to think on the fly in these pressurized situations, there's actually a skill set there that applies to a lot more than just that specific sort of game. Yeah, right. That you're learning these sort of more generalized anticipatory skills that allow you to later do what psychologists call transfer, which is is take certain abilities and move them to a new situation, which is essentially what you have to do as the game gets faster and faster and faster. Mm. So you really want to develop those perceptual skills very, very well. Um, and one of the main researchers in this area thinks that that's the primary benefit of the multiple sports. I think the matching one is, is huge also. Um, but another one is, you know, resistance to injury, basically. So there's this like epidemic now of, of adult-style overuse injuries in kids, in many cases, that will hamper their career in the, in the short term, but, but also maybe in the long term. And there's some protective effect of doing multiple different kinds of activities, even if you're doing more overall time in sports or athletic activity. Yeah, this one, this one does seem like the most counterintuitive, right? Like if you're trying to save someone from injury, you'd think let's have them do less or let's have them stick to the thing that they feel most comfortable in seemingly. I don't think anybody knows why this is the case. Like we can speculate about it, but there is some protective effect to diversifying like your movement patterns. There are these arguments that it might be building up so-called support muscles. So it's like giving more support to the things you're using over and over and over again. And, and in any sport, we do know, right, you, you protect someone from injury by having them do less at a certain point. But when they're developing, you protect them from injury by having them do more, like get stronger and get more mm. endurance and things like that. But this diversity of movement is really interesting. Like when I spend some time with the physiologist for Cirque du Soleil, they have like, you know, they have people who are Olympic athletes and incredible athletes who do like 100 shows a year or whatever. They have so much data. I, I have seen their show in Vegas. It is <laughs> remarkable, especially when set to Beatles music. Yeah. <laughs> and... Uh, they have like amazing data, like the performers, they can put biometric vests on them and all this stuff. And when they were looking at some of this data about diversification of movement, they actually took some performers they were developing and had them learn the basics of like other performers skills, not because they were going to perform them, but to see if it could help with their, their injuries. And they found it reduced their injury rates by like almost a third, mm. just diversifying their movement patterns. Coming up, why America is so focused on producing more Tiger Woods and not Roger Federer's. Delicious meat, nutritious. In the snack that packs a real protein punch, wonderful pistachios, one of the highest protein nuts out there. 
Each one-ounce serving has six grams of protein, giving you over 10% of your daily value. Trust me, I've been eating them like there's no tomorrow all week. Wonderful pistachios also come in a variety of flavors and sizes, perfect for enjoying with your family and friends or taking them with you on the go. And you, like me, are on the go a lot. Taking the kids to school, hopping from meeting to meeting, shopping for groceries, whatever it may be. Well, the good news is, not only are Wonderful Pistachios a complete protein providing all nine essential amino acids, they're also great for all your adventures. So whether you're a pistachio purist who loves cracking open every nut, or you prefer the convenience of no-shells pistachios, Wonderful Pistachios has got you covered. Grab Wonderful Pistachios and elevate your snack game today. Visit WonderfulPistachios.com to learn more. So, Dave, I do want to bring parents into this conversation because there are so many parents, so many families who do have the resources, who do really care about their kids' future in sports. And so they make the choice to follow this super specialized Tiger Woods model. And what you're telling me is that following that model can actually jeopardize that future, whether they know it or not. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that. There's Because I don't blame the parents for the most part. When I was still living in Brooklyn, there was a, a U7 travel soccer team that met like at a park across the street from me. I, I don't think there's a human being in the world that thinks six-year-olds need to travel in a city of nine million people to get <laughs> right, right. competition, right? That's like whoever's running that league's economic interest because they say, you know, if you, you the only way to do the U8 is to do the U7. And the only, so it's like, it's like a tech company, right? The, the, the league is trying to lock you into only their services, basically. But I think it's, it's really hard to tell parents to do something differently because they can't just live outside the system. Like if someone is forcing the kid in order to be on the 12-year-old team to, to specialize for 11-year-olds, what can they do? In America, though, we have so many athletes that we don't have to focus on individual development very well. We can just like have a giant funnel and burn a ton of people. Mm. Whereas in countries like Norway, which I would argue is the best sports country in the world right now. Really? They, they won more, the last two Winter Olympics, well, two Winter Olympics ago, they won more medals than like the US and China combined. They almost did it again. This offends my jingoistic sensibilities, Dave. The idea that <laughs> yeah, Norway sure. somehow is doing this better than, than the USA. Well, look, I mean, in the summer, they, they won sports that you don't usually associate with Norway. Like they won gold in beach volleyball, you know, in men's beach volleyball. Like, so I'm sure you're going to plan your next beach vacation to Norway. And it's a city of, I mean, sorry, a country of like 5 million people, but they have a national prohibition against ranking kids before age 12. Like a coach will get you know, find if they rank kids before age 12. And this is even more offensive, actually, to my jingoistic sensibilities. The idea that of, wait a minute, so now we can't even, like, create a hierarchy? We've got to protect these kids' feelings now? Well, I don't, I, I mean, I think they do want them to have fun playing sports, but I think they also recognize that keeping the talent funnel wide as long as possible is the best route to elite achievement. Like, when we see two kids playing sports, we see their different ability level, we're looking at a cross-section in a long story of development, but I think our intuition is to think that they will always be separated by that amount that we're seeing right now on a linear trajectory. And that just could not be further from the truth. Development is so zigzaggy that I think you want to build a system that allows people to stay in. So you don't deselect them so early that they can't kind of pull themselves up by their bootstraps or develop later or whatever it is. And I think that's what they're focused on. 
And so this is actually more about creating a better talent development system, a better pipeline to be competitive as opposed to like, yeah, prioritizing the feelings even of, of, of our kids. That's right. Because I, you know, I recognize a long time ago that any message that focuses on like the feelings is dead in the water anyway. Yeah. Parents, parents, parents are about wins, man. We're about those rings. But that, but I mean, that, I'm interested in performance too, right? So that's the angle that I look at it from also. <laughs> um, and yeah, so countries that can't afford to just like run through as many people as us, like Australia and like Norway and these other countries, they have development systems where they're, they try to keep, allow people to stay in the pipeline longer because they see that, you know, it's often like one, one country does this, they call the, the, the fast risers and slow bakers. And they're like, we spend all our time thinking about identifying the fast risers when they're the easiest ones to identify. Whereas many of our so-called serial champions are these more sort of slow bakers and they're concerned about deselecting them early so they kind of never have a chance. Yeah, I mean, the what you're describing sort of has echoes to me of like what it's like to almost be a child star, like as an actor. Like the idea that, oh, this kid, look, he's on camera, he's, he's doing scenes, he's like, he's famous. And then there's actually like a really hard path ahead in some ways that we underestimate because it seemed like they were ready for it from the very beginning. Yeah. And I mean, there's all this, as there is in, you actually reminded me of something we were talking about just before, is there's all this like weird sociology involved in child stars too, right? Like this incredibly complex stew of influences. I bet one of the things that happens to those child stars is similar to what in this famous... Swedish paper that looked at development of tennis players found. And what it found basically was that when a kid was identified as really talented, they would be moved into what these researchers called a more restricted environment. So basically someone would see them and say like, whoa, this kid's really good just playing, you know, doing their local thing, doing their like thing that Roger was doing, right? Where his coaches wanted to move him up to a higher level to accelerate his progress. Someone sees the kid, they're really good. You know, I want to move them up and put them with like a much more professionalized system. And those kids would usually end up quitting. And the ones that would end up going on to be ranked in the top 100 or the top 10 were not selected for that really early. Mm. So they were able to keep developing sort of more slowly inside of their sort of normal developmental pattern, basically. And so I would guess for some child stars in anything, there's like an analogy to that where someone sees they're really talented and instead of saying like, well, what they're doing is working. Maybe we should keep them on that path slowly. They move them into this much more regimented kind of system that, that may backfire. Yeah, the Corey Feldman model, I believe scientists call it. Yes, <laughs> I'm, I'm sure that yeah, I think that's the that's the scientific term. After the break. Some life advice straight from the Federer model himself. Vivid Seats wants to get you to the games you love this spring. Experience every pitch, assist, and game-winning shot live and in person. And the best part? Each transaction is a step toward a free 11th ticket with Vivid Seats rewards. Score unbeatable perks like free tickets, surprise seat upgrades, and annual birthday deals. As the official ticketing partner of ESPN, Vivid Seats is offering you $20 off your first $200 ticket purchase with code DAILY. 
That's code DAILY. Visit VividSeats.com or download the app today. Vivid Seats. Experience it live. Now let's talk about the play of the week. The pressure to follow up Hypnotic and Cognac weighing heavy on the team. Hypnotic was in the cup, blue, and ready for the play. And boom, Añejo Tequila came in with a smooth assist to Hypnotic's tropical fruit finish. Shaken, strained, poured. It was green and good. The playmaking splash shifted the tempo. Another great cocktail from the Hypnotic team. Every season is hypnotic and tequila season. Hypnotic liqueur, Bardstown, Kentucky, 17% alcohol by volume. Hypnotic reminds you to think wisely, drink wisely. And so you brought us back to tennis here specifically. And I am curious, like what Roger Federer has said about how this background in sampling all of these different sports, how, how did that affect how we actually came to be so good at tennis. Yeah, it's interesting. I was talking about some of the stuff we're talking about with our former Sports Illustrated colleague, John Wertheim, who also works for the Tennis Channel, and then saw a television clip where he is asking Roger Federer, you know, he says, like, you played a whole bunch of sports as a kid. What message basically do you have for for young people now? You famously did not specialize in tennis, eat, drink, breathe tennis. You played other sports, you rode your bike. Now that you're an adult, what do you think the effect of that generalization is on your tennis? How's that helped you? Well, I think it uh, helped me in a way that uh, it didn't make me get bored of the game, you know? And I think that's why I would tell all the, the juniors and kids out there, do other sports too, for fun. Go play squash, go ride your bike. Uh, go play basketball, um, go ski, whatever it is, until everything becomes a bit more serious and really serious and you can get really hurt. But uh, until you're in the mid-teens, I think you can really do everything. And uh, even later on too, um, because if you only start focusing so much on, on one sport uh, only, I, I feel like you can get burned out and uh, start seeing the sport for a job rather than actually a hobby. And I still see tennis as my hobby. That became my dream job, you know. But, uh, and he says essentially... I think it's really important for them to play a bunch of different sports and to keep it fun as long as they can because the earlier they start calling it a job, uh, the more likely things aren't going to go well. Even just the idea that he was able to play as long as he did, right? Like he was yeah. he was so impressive in that way. How did this affect that as you understand it? Yeah, I mean, I think his remarks went to the psychological aspect of that, right? Still being able to view it as a, as a hobby and do other things. But I once was giving a talk about some of this stuff. And <laughs> a guy approached me after the talk and said, I'm Roger Federer's surgeon. <laughs> I said, okay. So I didn't know what I was in for, but he said that he felt that Roger's sport diverse background made him, you know, more durable in the long run, uh, more like well-balanced athlete with a more well-balanced body, able to do more different things, able to adjust his game and maybe compensate for declining explosiveness in other ways because he had this um, this this broad skill set. And so I thought that was really cool. And he said, again, this was anecdotal, but he said that he was seeing a lot of really young people who are highly specialized early getting these career-limiting injuries, basically. And he felt that Roger's developmental history had a lot to play in, in his longevity. But these models, right? Tiger on the one hand, Roger on the other, these two distinct paths of how to become the greatest of all time, maybe. Did they ever collide? Did they ever cross, actually, those paths? Yeah, actually, in 2006, when they were both more or less unbeatable, I think, Tiger flew in to watch the U.S. Open. 
uh, and then and then join Federer in the the locker room to celebrate. And Federer described it as being re- unique. He said his words were almost exactly, I've never talked to anybody who was so familiar with the feeling of being invincible, right? which is a really <laughs> interesting... It's a pretty badass way of describing an encounter yeah. with someone. Yeah. <laughs> but he also then went on to say, to like highlight their contrast, right? He said his story's totally different than mine. As a kid, his goal was to break the record for winning the most majors. And he says, my goal was to meet Boris Becker, you know? <laughs> so like it was a totally, totally different uh, sort of approach. And yeah, like this stark contrast that he recognized sort of something common, but also this this very stark contrast between them. But for those of us who do want to feel invincible, I suppose, those of us who are chasing and trying to raise our kids even more pressingly, right, to maybe taste what it's like at the very top of any of these hyper-competitive fields, is this a sports phenomenon or how generalizable pun perhaps intended, is the generalist philosophy here. Yeah, I think more than not, it's generalizable. These benefits we talked about in sports of having a broader base to learn from, this slower, more gradual development, maintaining more enthusiasm, less burnout, and the match quality issue. Remember, match quality means the degree of fit, basically, between someone's interest and ability in the stuff that they do. And that turns out to be extremely important for your performance, for your ability to stick with something, for like your mental well-being. And more or less, the earlier you force someone to choose, the worse their match quality is likely to be. And this has been studied in a whole range of, you know, from education to like technological innovation, all these sorts of places, which is why, by the way, MIT and the Census Bureau had a study out in 2019 that showed the average age of a founder of fast-growing tech startup is 45. But again, (laughs) we only hear the Zuckerberg story, which is the tiger story, right? Zuckerberg, when he was 22, famously said, young people are just smarter. You don't hear him saying that anymore, right? (laughs) Those stories get all the focus because they're so dramatic, not because they're the norm. Well, let's make this about me now, finally. Dave, specifically, as we do inevitably. Yeah, you know, I I can't believe we held off this long. (laughs) Well, look, we've been friends for a long time. You know, I have a two and a half year old daughter, Violet. um, Who's already hosting a podcast, I hope. Yeah, well, let's 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 figure out like, let's say you want to do what I do. You want to raise theoretically the next like sports talk host, hot take artist. <laughs> how does how does the Federer model <laughs> apply to people? Not sure that that person can be helped, that parent can be helped, <laughs> but okay. But how does the Federer model apply to someone who wants to argue about Roger Federer? Yeah, well, I think obviously not having that built in of an expectation for your daughter is probably a place to start. Already but a I toxic mean, idea, admittedly. Right. What, what I would keep in mind, you know, and this sort of gets to a combination of my my books in some way, because the first one was about genetics and sports. The sports gene, yes. Yes. And and I didn't put a lot of it in, but I read a lot of behavioral genetics for that book. And what it impressed upon me, which at first I was upset about and then not, was that we don't create our kids as much as we think we do. That, you know, you can certainly ruin a kid with deprivation, but above like a certain level of enrichment, the best you can do is kind of help them discover what they're good at and interested in and 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 sort of support that. And so at first I was like, oh, lame. Like, so I can't like just give my kid a training head start. And then later I was like, wait, that also means I don't have to micromanage the kid because it doesn't really make a difference for the most part. So I think 
the model I think of is something that I learned about when I was spending some time reporting with the army. That sounds like a terrible analogy for parenting, <laughs> but when they were trying to improve performance and retention, they implemented programs like one called talent-based branching, where instead of saying like, here's your career track, get up or out, they have people sort of, they like pair them with kind of like a coach and they have them sample a bunch of different career tracks and like reflect on what fit them as they went through and what didn't. At least five different career tracks they sample. And through that, they were tracked in research. Some of them found they were bad at things they expected to be good at, which is an unpleasant surprise. But they often also found they were interested in things they thought would be boring and had talents that they didn't expect. And that improved their sort of retention because they were getting higher match quality. And so I view myself like as a parent, like the coach in that talent-based branching model where I'll expose my kid to a you know, number of opportunities. Obviously, those are always limited. And try to help him get the most signal about himself, about his interests and abilities by like helping him reflect on each of those experiences and what kind of met his expectations and what didn't. And if he wants to do something, what does he have to learn to do it? Who does he need to help him do those things? That's called self-regulatory uh, learning, where you're thinking about your own learning and thinking and so that you can direct and, and pivot and, and make it even better. And so you're saying, you know, at the end here that I probably shouldn't be clockwork oranging, opening Violet's eyelids and forcing her to watch uh, Stephen A videos every morning. I mean, if you do, I'll totally write about it. So please let me know like how it goes, because <laughs> uh, I think that'd be fascinating. If you're more interested sort of in, in your own improvement, you know, you're sometimes uh, in a position of making prognostications. All the time. Uh, on TV or on podcasts. For better and mostly for worse. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so I think most relevant to you that I, you know, that I wrote about in Range was definitely the most famous work ever done about prognostications, which is a 20-year study, 83,000 different predictions. People had to make predictions about, you know, global trends, whatever, economics, politics, all this stuff. Um, and they needed such a long study because you could separate luck from skill, right? And it turned out that the the worst forecasters turned out to be the people who were kind of the most specialized because they would kind of, they saw the whole world through like one lens or mental model and would bend everything around this one perspective. But interestingly, and, and I'm not sure if this is positive or negative for you, there was an inverse relationship between fame and accuracy uh, in the study. <laughs> so in many cases, the people making prognostications on podcasts or on large television networks are scientifically proven to be the worst forecasters in the world. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, you know, huh. I'm not saying we're just talk we're just two guys talking here. I don't want you to take this personally. I'm just saying this in general. Um, but, you know, you might want to broaden your perspective a little bit if you don't want to have to get into quite as many Twitter fights. Just saying, you know, <laughs> take it or leave it. Uh, David Epstein, thank you as always for making me feel both better and worse <laughs> about the human condition and myself. Glad I could help. <laughs> Thanks for having me. I'm Pablo Torre. This has been ESPN Daily. I'll talk to you tomorrow.